0: I'm fascinated by what draws our ear. Like I loved watching some of you all listen to that. Some of you were like, I don't know what that is. I've never heard that before. Oh, I've heard that before. Oh, I love that, I love that. And I'm just always drawn to what exactly is the formula for me to listen to something, whether it's an author's words, or a musician, or a movie line, or whatever it is that draws my ear. And it has always fascinated me about our ability to have selective listening. I mean, for some of us, you know, like, oh, I can't listen. No, you can listen. It's just, do you, are you choosing to listen? And I've really come to the determining factor when it comes to listening to something. I I've, I've found this common denominator. When you value the one who is speaking, you value what is spoken. Like, I really think that that's what it boils down to. I mean, the reason I would listen to a musician is because, I, man, I think they're a great band. Or a movie, I value what the the message of the movie might be saying, or the author, I just keep going back to the author to hear their words, because I value that author. And it's amazed me that it really is, the common denominator is, when you value the one who's speaking it, you value what is spoken. And honestly, the life of Samuel, that's really the picture you see, is someone who learned to listen to the Lord, Learn to hear his voice and to act on it. Now, what's interesting about the life of Samuel is, uh, just to give you a little historical background, between Joshua and Samuel, who Joshua we spoke about last week, between Joshua and Samuel, after they were led into the promised land, the Bible says that during the days of Joshua and all the elders that lived past his death, Israel served the Lord. They followed him, they served him, but after their death, things kind of get a little shady. Like what you see in the book of Judges and in Ruth is is kind of a nation on the edge, man. They're fragmented. They're 12 tribes. They're not ruled by a king. The Lord has appointed these judges to, like as Jazz said, administer justice and hear cases and all these things, but they were divinely appointed. Some were men, some were women, some were military leaders, some were not. But what you see is a picture of the nation of Israel that is divided. They're not really working together. And there's one case where Deborah, one of the judges, calls all of the nation of Israel, all the tribes to come together for a battle. And four of the tribes are just like, nope, not going to do it. See you on your own. Like, and the picture you begin to see of the nation of Israel is one that's of oppression, they're poor, everything is kind of just struggling to survive. I mean, you think, oh wow, that's, that's a crazy thought, but it really is the picture you see in the book of Judges, never getting it together because they are not under this kingship, they are kind of fragmented, divided, so trying to survive. The Lord is technically their king, is their king, he is their king, they are his people, so he appoints judges to kind of rule and make decisions for the people. But the end of, the cha- of Judges, chapter 21, verse 25, this is what it says. In those days, Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. And so I don't want to just kind of jump over this two to three hundred year period because there's the story of Deborah and her leadership, and then there's Samson and Delilah, the story of Gideon, who's one of my favorite Bible characters, In Ruth, there's the, the relationship between Ruth and Boaz, and the kinsman-redeemer aspect of, G, uh, of the Lord with his people. And so I don't want to just jump over those, but I would encourage you to just open the Word of God and begin to read the stories of God's faithfulness to his people. So the scene is set for Samuel to come, come up and show up. But Samuel's birth is a miracle in and of itself because Hannah, his mother, cannot have any children. Now, Cana, her husband, has another wife named Penaniah who she can have children, and she makes it her aim to make Hannah feel like dirt because she cannot have children. And she does this, and Hannah is constantly in a state of mourning, of weeping, not eating. She is just broken because she cannot have children. Now, husband's I want to, I want to paint a picture for you in this, in the, there's, there's a scene in the Bible that we see in this, in the story of Samuel, where Hannah is weeping over the fact that she cannot have any children and her loving husband comes up to her and says, Hannah, why are you crying? Why are you so downhearted? Because you cannot have children. You have me. <laughs> and then he goes, isn't that better than 10 children? And I asked Doreen, I said, Doreen, Doreen is my wife. I said, Doreen, what would you do if I did that to you? And she goes, I would punch you in the face. (laughs) But see, we don't get those details because the next scene you see after that comment from Elkanah is the family is headed to worship. And I was like, that's one of those Sunday morning arguments you get into right before you go to church. So really, they, headed, they head to the, the tabernacle at Shiloh, and they're offering sacrifice and festival, and it's that time of year for them to go. And Hannah, we find a scene where Hannah is sitting outside of the tabernacle, just kind of weeping and praying for, before the Lord. And the Bible makes it very clear that her mouth is moving, but no words are coming out because the words are coming from her heart. So she's on the front porch just doing this. You know, so I don't know what it looked like, but I'm I'm assuming that's probably what it was because Eli, the priest at the time, is sitting on the front porch of the tabernacle and in his words says, hey, drunk lady, get off my porch. You know, I mean, Eli being very sensitive and all, but Hannah looks at Eli and says, I'm not drunk. I'm just weeping and crying out for the Lord to give me a child because I can't have children. And if I can, if he would just give me a child, I would give him back to the Lord. And there's an, interesting, there's an interesting phrasing in there. She says that a razor will never touch his head. And so if you're just reading that, you're kind of like, oh, that's cool. They're not going to cut his hair. Well, I wanted to give you just a little historical background on that. What she was saying through that is a Nazarite vow. And that's found in the book of Numbers, chapter 6 you guys can read along. It says, If any of the people, either men or women, take the special vow of a Nazarite, setting themselves apart to the Lord in a special way, they must give up wine and other alcoholic drinks. They must not use vinegar made from wine or from other alcoholic drinks. They must not drink fresh grape juice, and they must not eat grapes or raisins. As long as they are bound by the Nazarite vow, they are not allowed to eat or drink anything that comes from a grapevine, not even the grape seeds or skins. They must never cut their hair throughout the time of their vow, for they are holy and set apart to the Lord." Until the time of their vow has been fulfilled, they must let their hair grow long. So what she was saying is, is I am setting him apart for the Lord for his entire life. That was her goal. Her response, her cry to the Lord was, I will let you have this child, and he can be yours, and he will be set apart as holy for you. He will be yours. And that's what she's saying. Now, it doesn't say in the scripture anywhere if Samuel ever went to get a haircut. It never says that. But the idea that she is communicating is, Lord, if you want him, he's yours. And so that's kind of what happens. The Lord remembers Hannah. And I want to make clear that that word remember doesn't mean that God has an angel in heaven tapping him on the shoulder going, hey, God, do you remember Hannah? And God's response, hmm, sounds familiar. Remind me some more. That is not what is being said in scripture. When it says that the Lord remembers someone, it means that he is moving into action on behalf of that person. So when you sing songs like, remember your people, Lord, remember me. It's not that he has forgotten you because he cannot and does not. But to remember you means to go into action on your behalf. And it says that the Lord remembered Hannah, went into action on her behalf, and she had a child. Samuel means heard of God. Means the Lord heard my cry. The Lord heard me. It's fitting because Samuel's life was one of listening to the Lord the whole time. And so Samuel begins this journey of being raised in the church. Some of y'all think you were raised in the church, not like Samuel was. Samuel lived there. You may have been there on a Sunday and a Wednesday and every time the doors were open, but he was there when the doors were closed. He slept next to the ark, the presence of the Lord. But he also saw the corruption in the church, in the religion, in the tabernacle, in the place of the Lord. He saw the corruption because of the men that were involved. Eli had two sons. They were supposed to be helping with the sacrifices and all these different things, but they were very evil men. They stole from the people's sacrifices. They slept with the women that were supposed to be helping out at the tabernacle. They did all of these bad things, and the nation knew about it. They brought it to Eli, and Eli was like, hey, guys, you better stop that. And they were like, nope. And Eli's like, okay, I can't stop you. And he lets it continue. So Samuel grows up in this what we think might be an ideal situation, but he sees a lot of stuff going on around him. And in this process, we have a glimpse of an encounter that Samuel has with the Lord that I think is absolutely priceless for us to get a catch of. And it's in actually First uh, Samuel chapter 3. And this is what he says. Meanwhile, the boy Samuel served the Lord by assisting Eli. Now in those days, messages from the Lord were very rare and visions were quite uncommon. One night, Eli, who was almost blind by now, had gone to bed. The lamp of God had not yet gone out and Samuel was sleeping in the tabernacle near the ark of God. Suddenly, the Lord called out to Samuel. Yes, Samuel replied. What is it? He got up and ran to Eli. Here I am. Did you call me? I didn't call you, Eli replied. Go back to bed. So he did. Then the Lord called out again, Samuel. Again, Samuel got up and went to Eli. Here I am. Did you call me? I didn't call you, my son, Eli said. Go back to bed. Samuel did not yet know the Lord because he had never had a message from the Lord before. So the Lord called a third time and once more Samuel got up and went to Eli. Here I am. Did you call me? Then Eli realized it was the Lord who was calling the boy. So he said to Samuel, go and lie down. And if someone calls again, say, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. So Samuel went back to bed and the Lord came and called as before. Samuel, Samuel, Samuel replied, speak, your servant is listening. Now, listening is a very interesting thing because I believe it is a learned skill. And I'm learning that every day with my two and a half year old's. I don't know how many of you have been through that battle, but my child at this point, I try to, try to instill listening skills in him. That I mean, that's part of my job is to help him listen to the voice of his parents. Zeke has this thing that he does, and I'm not sure why he does it or where he got it from, but I will find you if it was your kid that taught my child to say this, all right? Now, Zeke has this thing where like, I'll tell him, I'm like, Zeke, if you would please do this or please do that, and his response to me is, I am, I'm like, whoa, 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 buddy. Ho, whoa, whoa. That's my my grown-up voice. whoa. What are you thinking? We need to have a talk. So I pull him aside, and I say, look, Zeke, you do not say that. You don't talk like that to mommy and daddy. That's not acceptable. You say, yes, sir. You say, yes, ma'am. You understand me? Do you understand? Yes, I do. Do you understand? Mm -hmm. All right. Now, would you please clean up? I'm a sir, you're a (laughs) ma'am. His response over and over is I'm a ma'am. I'm like, okay, I guess that'll have to do for now. But it's like, it's like, it's so hard to teach kids to listen because it's like, you know what they need, but they refuse to do it, you know? And I'm like, all right, you're going to learn the hard way, you know? So we're going to have a bunch of talks. But I really do believe that listening is an acquired skill. It takes practice. You need instruction. You begin to go, oh, I need to hear this, I need to hear this, I need to hear this. And that's exactly what the beginning of Samuel's life looked like. Eli had to instruct him, this is how you listen. And this should be your response. And I think that is so critical for us to grab a hold of that because listening to the Lord's voice is a journey. It's learning to listen that still quiet voice, sometimes God is loud, sometimes he shouts, sometimes he whispers. Sometimes it's through people, and are we paying attention? Are we listening? I don't know. But either way, learning to listen, I believe, is something that is so priceless in this story and seeing how to respond to when the Lord leads. I guess in First Samuel chapter 3, uh, this is the reputation that Samuel has now. In verse 19, as Samuel grew up, the Lord was with him. And everything Samuel said proved to be reliable. And all Israel, from Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south, knew that Samuel was confirmed as a prophet of the Lord. And so here's the first hat Samuel begins to wear in the nation of Israel. He is prophet. The Lord speaks to him. He speaks what the Lord has spoken to him. The hard words, the easy words, the difficult words, the the tough time words. He speaks the word of God to the people. And this is a very difficult hat to wear because you don't always bring good news. It can be very difficult. And after this verse mentions Samuel, you really don't see a lot of him for about 20 years or so. That's looking at the Bible and what the stories tell in between. You don't really see him again. There's a a period of time where the nation of Israel has the ark taken from them. The Philistines come in and defeat the nation of Israel in a war. And back in those days... When a nation beat another nation, it was assumed that the god of that nation was more powerful than the god of the nation that was defeated. So they captured this ark, and they brought it before their Philistine god, Dagon, and put the ark in there in front of their statue of their god. The priests set it up, they turn the lights off, they leave, the next morning they wake up, come in, the statue of Dagon has fallen face first before the ark of the Lord. And they're like, "Hmm, that's strange. Let's put that back up. You know, that's not right." And so they walk out, and the next day they come back down, Dagon is not only face down, but his head has been removed and his hands have been removed before the ark of the lord. Now the priests go, "This is not good." Well, this is not nice. And then plagues and death begin, and they're like, whoa, this is not good news. Let's get this ark out of here. Send it to another city among our kingdom. And they begin to send it to another city. Death and plagues, follow it. And then they're like, well, let's get this thing out of here and send it to another city. And they're like, no, 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 don't you dare send that to our city. Do not bring that. I know what you're doing. Do not. So long story short, ends up back in the nation of Israel, just outside the city limits. And this is what the Bible says when uh, Samuel shows back up. In chapter 7, it says, so the men of Kirith-Jerim came to the ark of the Lord they took it to the hillside home of Benadab and or- ordained Eleazar, his son, to be in charge of it. The ark remained in kiriath Jerem for a long time, 20 years in all. During that time, all Israel mourned because it seemed the Lord had abandoned them. Verse 3. Then Samuel said to all the people of Israel, If you are really serious about wanting to return to the Lord, get rid of your foreign gods and your images of Asherah. Determine to obey the Lord Then he will rescue you from the Philistines. So the Israelites got rid of all their images of Baal and Asherah and worshipped only the Lord. Then Samuel told them, gather all of Israel to Mizpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and in great ceremony drew water from a well, poured it out before the Lord. They also went without food all day and confessed they had sinned against the Lord. It was at Mizpah that Samuel became Israel's judge. When the Philistine rulers heard that Israel had gathered at Mizpah, they mobilized their army and advanced. The Israelites were badly frightened when they learned that the Philistines were approaching. Don't stop pleading with the Lord our God to save us from the Philistines. They begged Samuel. So Samuel took a young lamb and offered it to the Lord as a whole burnt offering. He pleaded with the Lord to help Israel and the Lord answered him. Just as Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines arrived to attack Israel. But the Lord spoke with a mighty voice of thunder from heaven that day. And the Philistines were thrown into such confusion that the Israelites defeated them. Now, it makes it clear in Scripture that while Samuel is in leadership, the Israelites, um, the Philistines did not advance against the Israelites, and there was peace during that time. Um, and it's very interesting that, you know, you see that, that, that clearly, but then you hear the heart of the people. The people start complaining and groaning and arguing and saying all of this stuff. And, and I don't, I really don't understand what it is with godly men and their sons, like, you got these godly men, and then their sons turn out to be complete jerks. And this is what the Bible says about Samuel's sons. In first, in first Samuel chapter 8, this is, what they says. this is what it says. But they were not like their father, for they were greedy for money. They accepted bribes and perverted justice. Finally, all the elders of Israel met at Ramah to discuss the matter with Samuel. Look, they told him, you're now old, and your sons are not like you. Give us a king to judge us like all the other nations have. Here's the deal. Israel was not to be like all the other nations. Israel was separate for the Lord. He was their God. They were his people. That was it. But their desire to be like everybody else causes some issues in Samuel's heart. And this is what's recorded in Samuel 1 Samuel 8, verse 6. Samuel was displeased with their request and went to the Lord for guidance. Do everything they say to you, the Lord replied, for it is me they are rejecting, not you. They don't want me to be their king any longer. Ever since I brought them from Egypt, they have continually abandoned me and followed other gods. And now they are giving you the same treatment. Do as they ask, but solemnly warn them about the way a king will reign over them. And Samuel does just that, man. Samuel, there's this long section of scripture where Samuel goes into explaining, look, you want a king? This is what's going to happen. He's going to take your sons from you. He's going to make some of them his officers. He's going to make some of them his chariot bearers. Then he's going to take your daughters and he's going to make them his bakers and they're going to be his perfume makers. And I was looking for one more urs to rhyme with that, but I couldn't. There was nothing in the scripture. So, but perfume makers and bakers. And then he's going to take your land and he's going to give it to his friends. And then he's going to take your stuff and he's going to give it to other people. That's what's going to happen. If you have a king. And you know what? The day going to come when you're going to be like, oh, man, this stinks having a king. And you're going to cry out to God. God is not going to answer your request. And this is their response in verse 19. But the people refused to listen to Samuel's warning. Even so, we still want a king, they said. We want to be like the nations around us. Our king will judge us and lead us into battle. So Samuel repeated to the Lord what the people had said. And the Lord replied, do as they say give them a king. And Samuel agreed, sent the people home. So here you have the transition from the nation of Israel being ruled by judges to the transition of being a monarchy under a kingship. And this is where Saul comes on the scene. Many of you are probably familiar with Saul, the Old Testament king. And this is where Saul shows up on the scene. And it's actually a very interesting story. I'd encourage you to go read the, the whole journey that Saul takes to be anointed as king. The Lord selects Saul and Saul actually is out looking for his dad's donkeys because he's lost them. And Saul's like, man, things are, it's taken us a really long time to find these donkeys. And my dad's gonna start worrying about us more than he is the donkeys. So let's go home. And his servant's like, hey, I've heard of this dude, Samuel. He can tell us which direction to go. Let's just go see him. And Saul ends up being anointed as king. So moral of the story is don't go looking for donkeys, I guess. Um, But the point is, is Saul ends up king, And and actually, there is this. There is a funny scene that I'm like, man, this is hilarious to me. I just the way some of these stories just they crack me up. But Samuel is about to anoint Saul his king. The nation of Israel gathered. He's about to anoint him, and he's like, now remember, this guy right here is going to oppress you. He's going to abuse you. You're going to be his slaves. Anybody want to stop right now? Anyone, please. Someone, all right. You know, I can just see him just doing it that way. But maybe it wasn't that way. Probably not. But I'm just very visual when I see things. But Samuel gets to see Saul anointed as king, and uh, it's almost as it. You know, the Bible kind of records the life of Saul, and it's like it's it starts and then it's almost it's like it's over, because Saul is disobedient to the Lord in several areas. One being which he was told to, um, to go and take out an entire people because of the sin that was represented. And he said, I want you to take them all out. And Saul's like getting cocky. So he, ca- he captures the king and he lets his men go in and take all the treasure. And that's not what the Lord asked him to do. And then there was another time when Saul you know, offers a sacrifice, which is not anyone's job but the priest. Saul went ahead and did something that was not for him to do. And he really, really screwed up there. And so Saul's end, you know, is pretty much sealed in that situation. But what is amazing to me about this, and I want to say this, and I hope you hear me correctly, when you historically look at the nation of Israel as their 12 tribes, fragmented, oppressed, poor, not very advanced in any of their technology, inventions, trade, art, any of that stuff under the judges. But when you look at Israel when they are ruled by a king, by a monarchy, their nation grows to larger than it's ever been. The advances in their art, in their inventions, in their housing, everything just flourishes. I'm not saying that the Lord blesses sin. What I am saying is that the Lord remains faithful to his people. That you cannot argue with. And I hope that you understand that. And Pete, two weeks ago, put it so perfectly. He said, the Old Testament stories, the goal is not to lift up an individual character it is to observe the activity of God among his people and he sticks so close to his people and it's amazing to me even when I try and move in my own and not in his how the Lord remains faithful it's a character that I don't think gets talked about enough about the quality of God qualities of God and the character of God and his faithfulness to his people so Saul, in his disobedience, he, he comes to an end as a reign, and the Lord says, hey, I'm, I've picked David as the new king. And we all know the story of David, most of it, which next week, if you don't, I, I challenge I encourage you to be here, um, to hear the story of David. But a man after God's own heart. It's his nickname, you know? I'm like, what a great nickname to walk around with. But in this process... Saul's disobedience and Samuel goes to meet Saul and he's like, I got to, we got to take care of this. I got to understand what's going on here. And the Bible opens up that Saul has been out making an altar to himself. First mistake, well, multiple mistakes, but that's a big one. You know that the Bible records that he's making an altar to himself and he comes up to Samuel. He's like, Hey Samuel, how you been, man? You know, I did everything that the Lord asked me to do. I did it, you know, and Samuel's like, stop right there. I've heard from the Lord, and he's told me something. And Saul's response is, what did he say? I at least see him saying it that way. He was probably very mighty about it. Oh, yeah, what did he say? I was just kind of like, what did he say? That's, that's my response anyway. But this is what Samuel told him in chapter 15. He says, and Samuel told him, although you may think little of yourself, are you not the leader of the tribes of Israel? The Lord has anointed you king of Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and told you Go and completely destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, until they are all dead. Why haven't you obeyed the Lord? Why did you rush for the plunder and do what was evil in the Lord's sight? But I did obey the Lord, Saul insisted. I carried out the mission he gave me. I brought back King Agag, but I destroyed everyone else. Whenever there's a but in your statement, you need to pay attention to what you're saying. Then my troops brought in the best of the sheep, goats, cattle, and plunder to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Verse 22, but Samuel replied, what is more pleasing to the Lord, your burnt offerings and sacrifices or your obedience to his voice? Listen, obedience is better than sacrifice and submission is better than offering the fat of rams. I really do believe that this verse is the theme and central point of Samuel's life where he tried to live there from his heart did he do it all the time? But I really do sense, reading through his life, this is where he tried to live. To obey is better than sacrifice. And what that means, it means, you know what? The Lord tells us to do something, and we're like, but Lord, let me do this instead. That's, all, that's what it means. That's, that, the sacrifice thing, we like that. We like that idea. God, okay, you, I know you, you've said to do this through your word, but can I just do this instead? We love to play that game. Samuel wasn't having it. He spoke it right to Saul and said, this is what you did. And this is why you and your family line are coming to an end. Now, Samuel's really not mentioned again that much until in verse 25 or chapter 25, it says, and Samuel died. And then Saul, in his desperation, even though he knew his, his kingdom had come to an end, he was done in his desperation, consults a medium to bring Samuel back and so he can talk to him and find out what's going on. And I love, the ver- I love the way Samuel greets Saul. He's like, hey, why are you bothering me, kid? Why'd you bring me up here? You know, from the dead, he's got a New York accent. I don't know why, it just works. <laughs> he tells him the exact same thing. He's like, you're done. Saul, you're finished. But the life of Samuel is one that you see a lot of the leadership that the Lord sets up, painting a picture of Jesus. Samuel served as as a prophet. He spoke, heard from the Lord, spoke the word of the Lord, served as a priest. He was the go-between between between the sinful people, as Jazz put, and a holy God. He was the one who went between, pleaded on their behalf. In fact, Samuel is mentioned in the company of Moses as being the intercessor for Israel. Serves as judge, ministering justice. But the one position he never filled was king. All positions that paint a picture of who Jesus is. All positions that show us who Jesus would be when he walked onto the scene some years later. You know, <clears throat> I do think that what we like to do is really kind of like what Saul does. The Lord gives us this word, and we come up with our own thing. Doreen and I were on our honeymoon about eight years ago at Epcot Center, and we were walking with this mass of people. It was just crowded. And I remember, you know, we were walking, and behind us was a dad and his daughter. And the daughter, you know, it was crowded. And so the dad, I'm, I'm assuming, obviously just was like, hey, hey, sc- excuse me, uh, hold my hand. And her response has stuck with me my entire life. I don't know why, since we heard it, it's stuck with me. But her response was, Daddy, I can do the chicken dance. (laughs) But the dad's response is even better than hers. He says, I'm not asking you to do the chicken dance. I'm asking you to hold my hand. And for some reason, the Lord has used that in my life so many stinking times, it's ridiculous. Jesus is called—in is, is the, the, in the book of Hebrews, I'd love to read you these verses. Jesus is a high priest. He is the go-between between a sinful people and a holy God, the once and for all. This is the way Hebrews describes him in Hebrews chapter 3. And so, dear brothers and sisters who belong to God and are partners with those called to heaven, think carefully about this Jesus whom we declare to be God's messenger and high priest, for he was faithful to God who appointed him, just as Moses served faithfully when he was entrusted with God's entire house— but Jesus deserves far more glory than Moses, just as a person who builds a house deserves more praise than the house itself. In Hebrews chapter 5, while Jesus was here on earth, he offered prayers and pleadings with a loud cry and tears to the one who could rescue him from death. And God heard his prayers because of his deep reverence for God. Even though Jesus was God's son, he learned obedience from the sufferings he suffered, from the things he suffered. In this way, don't miss this. God qualified him as a perfect high priest and he became the source of eternal salvation for all those who obey him. In Hebrews chapter nine, so Christ has now become the high priest over all the good things that have come. He has entered that greater, more perfect tabernacle in heaven, which was not made by human hands and is not part of this created world. With his own blood, Not the blood of goats and calves, he entered the most holy place once for all time and secured our redemption forever. Now, I really do think here's what we do. Jesus says, love your neighbor. We say, who exactly is our neighbor, Lord? Yeah, come on, let's get specific here. They're not really my neighbor. They're not really my neighbor. Jesus says, forgive. Forgive. We say, God, let me give you all the reasons why I shouldn't. Jesus says, put down your stuff. We say, all right, Jesus, I just need you, and that's it, In this ashtray. All right, and that's all I need is this, you, and this ashtray, and this paddleball game. That's all I need, Jesus. That's all I need is just you, and this remote. That's all I need, Jesus, just you and this ashtray and my paddleball game and my remote and my lamp stand—that's all I need. Jesus says, "Follow me," and we say, "How long is this going to take? I got this thing to be at." We are so good at having selective hearing, but here's the deal. If you'd love and value the one who's speaking, you value what is spoken. So if I don't value Jesus, why wouldn't I stick my life around ESPN? If I don't value Jesus as a 13 or 14-year-old kid, why wouldn't I value the word of another 14 or 15-year-old kid promising me that he loves me? If I don't value Jesus, then why wouldn't I invest my ears in anything else but his words? Jesus made it very simple in John 14, 15. Boy, do I love how he puts it. If you love me, obey my commandments. Notice his wording doesn't say obey my commandments if you love me. It says, if you love me. Love before obedience. The reason I obey is because he first loved me. The reason I respond to his leading is because he first reached out to me. The reason I attempt to live my life from the place of to obey is better than to sacrifice it's because he is the perfect sacrifice, and he gave up his life, and he's the go-between between a holy God and a sinful people. Listening is a learned skill, but I really do believe when you value the one who's speaking, you will value what is spoken. And Jesus' first command to us is, "Come." to and through me. Everything else is just a response to that. Our obedience comes because of what he has set up in being the perfect high priest, the go-between. That's it. If you love me, obey my commandments. Now, the guys are going to come, and we're going to finish with a time of worship and communion and just celebrating what the Lord has done. But I really do sense that sometimes there are people, we in the church can miss this completely. We get happy with our sacrifices, and the Lord's asking for obedience. But Lord, I went to church. I threw a couple bucks in the basket. You know, Lord, I sacrificed sleeping in this morning. I really did here's the deal there will be some who choose to live their life based on sacrifice rather than obedience and there will come a day according to scripture where we will meet Jesus as either friend or judge Jesus fulfills all of the Old Testament places of leadership prophet priest king and judge but according to scripture said that he did not come into the world to condemn the world or to judge the world. He came into the world to save it. So right now, he is acting as Savior, the go-between a holy God and a sinful people. But there will come a day, according to the Bible, that every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that he is king. And you will meet him either, what the Bible says, as judge, and you're going to take all of your sacrifices and put them on the scale and weigh it next to God's holiness, and it's going to come up way short every time. Or... You can go, you know what, God? (laughs) My sacrifices, according to the Bible, they're like rubbish to you. But I do trust what Jesus did. I trust that he finished it so that I can have new life and that I can be counted righteous by my faith in him. If you love me, obey my commandments, is what he said. First one being, come to me. Everything else is a response. Now, when you walk up to one of these four corners of the room, you'll see a plate with some bread, and you'll see a cup with some juice. And what we're doing when we take that, this does not save us. This is not what we do every week to, um, I don't know, re-save ourselves every week. That's what some people think. According to scripture, when we take this bread and dip it in the juice and we take it, it says that we are professing and proclaiming the Lord's death until he returns. What we are saying is that we have placed our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ to forgive us of our sins. That's what we're saying. And it is a remembrance of him. He said, do this in remembrance of me. That's why we do it. So when your heart is prepared and when you're ready, go and remember that he is the go-between between a sinful me and a holy God. And because of what he did, I stand clean, new, and according to scripture, righteous in the sight of the Father. And I will meet Jesus as friend. Parents, tell your children about this. Teach them. Let them know what they're doing. When you're ready, four corners of the room father thank you for the word of god and how it is living and active and it continues to shape and change and convict and challenge and move us through a response god may we please 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 choose obedience over sacrifice would you help us to get it right we get it wrong so often But thank you for staying faithful to your people. Thank you for being patient so that all might repent. Thank you for being slow to your return, not because you're forgetting, but because you want people to come to know you. Thank you for your faithfulness, even when we're faithless.